but I personally believe we are responsible for trying to resolve environmental degradation or solve social problems that have been caused by businesses. Purpose Tea Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to Purpose Tea with Brianne West, founder and CEO of Atik. Valued at over 100 million, Atik is an ethical cosmetics brand headquartered in Christchurch, New Zealand. Atik is also a B Corp. Brianne West is the founder of the Atik Foundation, also trying to make a positive difference to people and the planet. Our conversation starts there and then goes back to uncover her founder's story and beliefs around good business. Enjoy the episode. Don't forget to share with friends, family, and colleagues. Enjoy. Brianne West, welcome to Perfectly Podcast. Thank you very much. You're the founder of a really successful cosmetic brand or company. It's been valued at over 100 million, which is phenomenal. And I'm really looking forward to finding out more about that. We're going to, going to get there in a minute. But, um, one of the things I really loved about what you're doing is really early on, you made a commitment that when profitable, you would give away 20% of your profits and you've set up a charitable foundation. How's that journey been? Like, A, becoming profitable must have been good. Well, it wasn't actually linked to profitability. No. So we always said it was 2% of sales or 20% of profit, whichever was larger. So for the first few years being a startup, it was um, sales related. So we've always uh, since, I think, I think we put it into place 2014. So the company was founded at the end of 2012. And for a year and a half, I sort of tinkered about as a bit of a pilot. But then come 2014, I think it's when I first heard about B Corp. And that was the, I guess, the the moment where I understood how to actually craft a charitable program within a company and how much, because I got a lot of flack. And to be honest, still do a wee bit actually uh, on, on a company donating that much from people saying you won't have the money to do it, you can't do it, you can't do it as a startup, you wait till you're more profitable, wait till you're bigger, blah, blah, blah. So the B Corp um, process, they actually flag 2% of sales or 20% of profit as the gold standard. And that was what I based the Atik one off. And ever since then, that's what we've done. Wonderful. And just really interested in who's giving you the flack. Like, this is your, your accountants. This is, this is yours. Some of your, your, Actually, no, an accountant has never been an accountant. Investors or potential investors, I should say. And, um, some advisors, certainly not all, but the odd advisor who is, um, who was more focused on how a company would be financially sustainable. And again, I understand that where they're coming from, uh, because business as usual is, is a very particular, you know, profit first, everything else is a secondary consideration. Whereas that's not how a tech runs. Yeah. And we're going to dive into that stuff. But what's the process been like in setting up the foundation? Has it been fairly straightforward? Like you, you were giving money anyway, but the actual, you know, getting some trustees, signing a, a you know, a trustee, getting lawyers involved, like that process of setting up and then sort of creating criteria. And I imagine suddenly influx of people arriving at your door for money, maybe. But yeah, tell us a bit about the, the sort of startup process. Starting it up was quite easy just because we had really, really good, we, obviously, Atik has a, a big law firm and who we work with, and they did a lot of the work for us pro bono as they saw it as a good thing they wanted to be involved with. So they walked us through the process because obviously it's the first time I've ever done anything like that. But the biggest piece was that uh, we had a couple of advisors or philanthropic advisors because what we did historically was give money to a whole swathe of community groups based on if they fell into a couple of buckets, but those buckets were too big. 
it was like animal welfare, environmental protection, so on and so forth. And those are two big as categories go. So all the advice we were given was ensure that everything, what your, your focus for this foundation is really narrow. So that's why we focus on ocean conservation. And even that is arguably too wide, but I can't bear to narrow it down any further. Yeah. So what we wanted to do when establishing the foundation was ensure that the money we gave went to one specific focus and that there was accountability and we understood what it was that money actually achieved. But um, that was really hard to do, if I'm honest. So the setting up, the legal setting up of it was easy. We just relied on lawyers. What was difficult was figuring out what it is that we wanted the Atik Foundation to focus on out of all of the things we wanted to love and protect. And... uh how we, how we would narrow that down. So we had actually quite a, a good couple of comp- uh, discussions as a company. We got, we voted and as a team, you know, we think largely alike, but it was a tough process to narrow that down more than anything. Yeah. And creating that entity and, uh, you know, inviting trustees in and, you know, setting some criteria and a, and a cause that you're really going to focus on kind of helps because there's, there's no sort of backing out. Eh? There's no sort of, and in, in a couple of years saying, actually, board of that now, you know, you're, you're creating another another entity, which is going to keep hopefully delivering impact on the environment. Yes, exactly. So if, you know, one day when I sort of want to go on and do something else, rather than run a teak, uh, it'll be good that that is, well, I'll still be a trustee of the Atik Foundation, and I'll probably still have oversight of that, but it will be good that it's built into the company's DNA as a separate entity, that it will continue on. Yeah. And I think that's the key is is long-lasting impact is to ensure that these structures we put in place outlive the people who put them there. I think sometimes corporate foundations end up, not at the beginning, but often when they get bigger, the company and the foundation, that sort of, that set up that agreement between the company and the foundation about, you know, the money, how it's, how it's going to be run, the sort of governance of it, all of the decision-making. Like some of those decisions you make right at the start are really important because they protect the charitable giving uh, in case the company has a tough time or that side of it you manage to get clarity on through using those advisors yes so they were very helpful with that sort of thing but so were to be honest so were lawyers i mean none of it's overly complicated i, I think a lot of companies will over complicate something just for the sake of it uh, <laughs> it's much easier to create something complex and unwieldy than it is to create something simple that works in as many situations as possible. And I think that's what we've landed quite nicely. And that's as a result of using people who've been in the real world and seen how these things function or don't function. You kind of go on record saying that, you know, you, you make your own decisions or, you know, your team are empowered to, to lead stuff and getting in external advisors when it comes to giving and philanthropy, did that feel right and natural? Yeah, it did. It's the right thing to do to get people inspired and behind it and behind the, the mission. I'm not an expert in this. Um, I'm not an expert in many things, or if anything, and I'm certainly not even slightly experienced in this sort of thing. So, yeah, it was um, it was a logical step, even though some of this, the advice they were giving, I thought, uh, I don't love that because narrowing narrowing the focus down was harder than people might imagine. And not because um, your business it differs from your business mission in terms of that seems wider in terms of you know supporting your employees, working well with your customers. I say your your supply lines, but yeah, narrowing the focus of the foundation, I can see from that perspective would have been tricky. Yeah, we're raising the bar. So we, we, we mean by that, literally, obviously, putting a bar in every shower, but raising the bar for industries at large to treat their teams with respect and pay fairly, you know, pay a living wage. But also look at things like supply chains, which are usually, usually incredibly murky and full of indentured labor or child labor, things people don't want to think about that we really need to. And you talk to other business leaders who 
don't give away uh, or aren't as generous. They're not focusing so much on on giving back and starting up a, a corporate foundation or you know a, a foundation related to the company is is relatively rare. Have you had others search you out and and ask you about it? Have you managed to sort of share a bit of the reasons why you're doing it with with those people, those other business leaders? The people who search you out definitely don't need to be told why. They want to be told how. And they want uh, advice as to how to go about it. But of the people who've asked me questions about it, they've all been on board with absolutely understanding that this is, in my opinion, business's obligation. You know, we are responsible for ensuring that not only do the stuff, the products or the services that we create, not only not create damage, but I personally believe we are responsible for trying to resolve environmental degradation or solve social problems that have been caused by businesses, even if it wasn't that one specific business that did it. Does that make sense? Yeah, fantastic. Now, pausing for a minute and changing tack and taking you back to your when you arrived in New Zealand. You're not from Aotearoa, mm-hmm. but you're from the Isle of Man. You came here in the mid-90s. How was that? You were, you were seven at that point. Do you remember much of it? I remember falling down the stairs, but my parents actually told me that didn't happen. So I think I've either invented a memory or they've blocked it out. I don't know. But no, to be frank, I don't. I don't remember a lot of the Isle of Man. Um, we went back a couple of years ago, and it does explain why I am quite so obsessed with the ocean and rough, wild weather and lots of, you know, roaring waves and just a wild environment because that is the Isle of Man. It's like, a, what is it? It's a rock in the middle of the um, the Atlantic. Yeah. You know, it's wild and fresh and freezing cold, but I love it. It really is one of the most beautiful is it closer to Ireland? Closer to Ireland than it is to the UK? I think it's actually slap bang in the middle. I'm just thinking fast motorbikes, like really fast motorbikes. Yeah. That's what I Yeah, yeah. That, it does ex- explain my obsession with speed too, unfortunately. And and um, for an environmentalist, I am quite a fan of <laughs> of cars, but obviously now electric cars are making that slightly less guilty feeling. And it's interesting how you went, you went back there later in life and did you get that? real connection feeling, did you? Yes, actually I did. It was the first time we went back either. It was a few years ago, just prior to COVID. Um, took my parents to New York for Christmas and then we went on and saw family in England and shot over to the Isle of Man for a few days. And yeah, um, I don't know how to explain it actually, but I don't I don't know my UK family very well because I haven't seen them too much, but it was an instant connection that I sort of felt with them and then very much an instant connection when I went home well, to the Isle of Man and thought... Yeah, I've been here before. I don't know how to, not like in some ethereal way, but I just felt at home there, I suppose. Yeah. Growing up in New Zealand and, you know, like you're living a relatively normal life, school, hanging out with friends, what were your interests? And was there sort of things that you were doing as a child that could have told us a little about, a bit about becoming an entrepreneur later in life? Or what was um, childhood like growing up in Christchurch? Is that right? No, I grew up in Queenstown, actually. Ah. We moved to Dunedin, lasted there for a little bit. I think we got sick of the rain. No, all the love to Dunedin. I do like Dunedin. But we moved to Queenstown. I would have been maybe eight or maybe nine and grew up there until I was about 18. And I loved it. Um, I grew up on friends' stations. I had a few friends who had a few stations. So I grew up on farms, figuring out how to you know, climb up mountains and splash around in rivers. And I remember the first time I was taught to run down a scree slope and I was terrified I was going to die. And, you know, it was that sort of um, exploration and this adventure that seemed really adventurous to a kid that had grown up in the Isle of Man where I had only loved books. Um, my parents bought me an outdoor adventure playground, you know, slides and swings and stuff. And apparently all I did was sit on the slide reading a book. I was a very... <laughs> 
unadventurous kid until I got to New Zealand and then <laughs> I was re-educated, if you like. Uh, and I think that outdoorsy uh, childhood and through my teens is what has made me as passionate about the environment as I am. Although, in saying that, I was always obsessed with animals for as long as I can remember. Yeah. And obsession with animals because you had a lot of them in your life or because your parents cherished them? Or? I don't know. Um, parents have always loved animals, my mother in particular, but both of them have always liked them, but certainly not to the level that I do. But no, we didn't actually have pets. I think we had guinea pigs, as you know, the obligatory childhood pet. But we didn't have a lot of animals growing up. And what sort of what sort of school could we? Were you, were you like studious? Were you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Um, I, this is going to sound terrible. I've always been um, relatively intelligent, so I am also therefore quite slack about it. So I would do the bare minimum and achieve the results I wanted. And yeah, so I was very slack. Uh, didn't attend lectures at university, that kind of awful, awful student that I do not recommend anybody uh, is. is. Is that because you didn't, you couldn't connect with the why the hell are you doing it? Was that, that, was that the, the issue? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because I hate, hated, hated, hated with every fibre of my being maths. I couldn't stand it. The hours I had to spend in that classroom were just nothing short of awful. But when I, you know, when I started to put maths and science together, and science being the reason you do something, you know, so whether it was teaching myself cosmetic chemistry or it was understanding, you know, biological statistics, that was when maths came to life for me and, and numbers, and now even more so with finance and understanding what a P&L is telling you about your business, for example. For me to hold, to, to stay interested in something, it has to be applicable to the real world. So, yeah, I think you're right. Once something starts to tell you a story or starts to have a purpose beyond, you know, two times two, then it's, yeah, then it holds my interest. But I am, I unfortunately I get bored very easily. Um, I don't remain on task for very long. So whilst I enjoyed school, I wasn't a, um, a great, I think all my school reports is um, easily distracted and talks too much. <laughs> Brilliant. All good schools for later in life. Now, yeah. get, get bored easily, you know, like potentially lack of focus, but an entrepreneurial interest, where did, where did that sort of get nurtured? Like, cause you started some companies quite early on in life, didn't you? Yeah, I think I had um, a pet detective company at age eight, which a lot of people seem to think is hilarious, but I was quite serious. It was a proper business. To my understanding, I think I'm the first in family extended and otherwise to have started a business. So it's not necessarily something that runs in the family, but I think entrepreneurial thinking in general is so creating stuff. My mum is very creative artistically and my dad is very creative from a language side of things. Like he loves writing. They always told me I could do anything it is I wanted to do. It was always, you can you know, you want to go and be a doctor this week and then you want to be a vet the next and then you want to be an oceanographer the next week. Honestly, I changed wanting what I wanted to be every 10 seconds and they were always very supportive. Yep, that's something you can easily go and do. I mean, the one thing I've always secretly nurtured is I want to go to space. I want to be an astronaut. Not going to happen because of the hatred for maths that I <laughs> mentioned earlier, but they've always said, you know, you can go and do whatever it is you want to do. That diversity of experience and finding your own way with support from your family sounds like a good childhood yeah yeah very much so very very lucky very very privileged and you talked uh, sort of openly about being a terrible employee or working with someone would be quite would be a great spot for you um the sense that you want to take control and do something yourself so you launched a few other companies didn't you from the pet de detective onto some food related uh, business but tell us a bit about that that journey and getting bored with them quite quickly was i think what you said publicly in the past yeah 
goes back to the point, uh, which I guess is, is the culmination of everything, is if something doesn't have a greater purpose, a little bit like the, the story with the numbers, then I'm not interested very long. So I had, I moved up to university, to Christchurch, and I had a, what did I have? Oh, yeah, that's right. I started a, a cake decorating company because my mum is, I told you she was creative. She really does create the most amazing cakes, like 3D dragons and stuff. And I was like, you know what? That probably runs in the blood. I can do it too. Had that for about a half an hour before I panicked and realized I actually cannot decorate cakes to save my life. Um, but by that point, I'd actually had someone try to engage me in creating one. So that was my first business and it didn't last very long. Second one was a cosmetics company, a, a normal, typical cosmetics company. And that went really well, actually. Had that for... <sighs> maybe three or four years, sold it in the end, but it taught me a lot. Um, and it did teach me that I do need a greater purpose than just making money. And it was about two years into having that, that I started the confectionery company called um, Tub, which was Spoonable Fudge, which was butter, sugar, chocolate, and cream, I think, an equal, <laughs> pretty much equal um, components. And it was um, fun, but it was also really, really boring because all I was doing, actually, mum and I were um, having to make, I think we made, I think we could make 200 kgs of fudge a week, which we had to do in a commercial kitchen during the weekend, which was the only time we could rent it. And then we had to sell the rest of the week. But the problem is we never got on, char got on top of the demand. It was enormously popular. And um, it just became this real drudge, a real hard business, actually, um, simply because the demand was too high, which is a great problem for a business to have. But because I didn't have the passion for it because, you know, it's not doing anything other than rotting people's teeth and giving them you know, precursors to diabetes, uh, it didn't hold my interest very long. So, yeah, um, sold that one. Do you remember being conscious of that? Do you remember thinking that I'm just making people fat? Was it like as clarity of thought around that? <laughs> and you, no, and you no. no. It was more that I'm not doing anything good rather than what I'm doing is neat. Because at the end of the day, people, you know, people deserve a treat. People want to eat something fun. You know, we're not all going to subsist on broccoli. But it was, yeah, it just, it just lacked that, that greater purpose, which is probably why I jammed as much purpose and goodness into a teak as possible because I'd had those two businesses that were just a little bit more typical. Yeah. And, you know, when you conceived uh, teak and you went back to thinking cosmetics and you re think about reimagining what a business could look like and purpose and profit and stakeholder kind of looking after stakeholders as, as much as you can. And certainly the environment, like when you were sort of percolating that in your head, was it, did it have real clarity or did it evolve in those, in that early period? Yeah, it evolved. Yeah. yeah, definitely evolved. And it's still to a degree evolved now, I suppose. I had sort of the basics in mind, which was I wanted to be as ethical and as kind and equitable as possible. And then how I achieved that was varied. Um, the more reading I did in certain areas, and like I said, I'm certainly not a philanthropic expert and I have a lot less experience back then too. So it was a lot of learning and then tweaking policies or what we did. And when I say policy, I mean, we didn't write anything down for about five years. I wasn't a paperwork person. So yeah, it evolved and got better and better, but it should do because a company's sustainability or regenerative journey should never be a, cool, we've ticked that box, now we're done. That's not how it works. Mm. So launched in 2012, but you were working on it before that. And how did you, how did it sort of start? Did it, did you literally just start it one day and go, right, I'm making products, I'm selling, however that looks? Honestly, I don't remember. Mm. I know. People ask me this a lot and I I don't want to invent a story to fit in with the narrative. I just, I don't remember. And it's very annoying because I really wish I knew <laughs> 
how I sort of fired it up because it's one of the biggest questions you get is how do you start? And my answer to that is always you take it one bite at a time. Now, knowing me, I would have uh, done all the creative, fun, exciting stuff. You know, we've had the logo, which actually, if you look back years and years ago, my mum hand painted um, the text first logo, Saul Bay. It was a bit cool back then. Saul Bay's first logo. So I would have done all that cool stuff. But what I spent a lot of time prior to launch, of course, was product formulation because formulating, we launched with the shampoo and conditioner, with shampoo and conditioner bars. Launching with those took a long time to get right. In fact, if you look at the early pictures of them, they're the same formulas as now, but the manufacturing process was different and they look so handmade. It's not funny. And one thing that when I was doing my sort of research for this conversation, one of the things that's slightly surprised my guests is your sort of, your cosmetic second, actually your main passion is delivering a better world, playing your part in a better environment, playing your part in a better social fabric. That's the main driver. That's the thing that really gets exciting. Yeah. Um, I think what we do, what we make is the least exciting part about us, to be honest. What we do, how we do it and why we do it is so much more exciting. Yes, everybody needs shampoo and conditioner, shampoo at least, to wash their hair. But how we do that, how how we deliver that and why we deliver it, uh, I think that's much more interesting. I enjoy the science behind the cosmetics, but I, I'm not, I've just never been one of those people that will, that just finds it super exciting to talk about beauty and cosmetics all day, every day. I do watch more than I should of that on TikTok, though, I'm sure. <laughs> and, you know, you took a really unique approach to, to fundraising. So you, you start this business, you obviously need funds to, to, to scale it, to grow production. And you, and you went out to what looked like equity crowdfunding, which is unusual at that time. And yes. what, what what was that sort of journey like? Because you, I guess you're learning as you went, but you, you know, to scale and grow it, you really need the money, you need other people to help you. Yes. I first heard about equity crowdfunding, I think, when Anna Gunther from Pledge Me reached out, or we were introduced or something. I don't know. We, we met. And I loved what her vision was for Pledge Me, which was to democratize investment. So at that point, for, you know, I was a young founder. I knew we needed money, and I was terrified of angel investors because I'd heard nothing good about them whatsoever. And, um, which is not a fair assessment, to be clear. I know lots of wonderful angel investors, but that was the opinion I had back then because as a founder, you're given all the horror stories in the world. So investment sounded scary and Pledge Me offered a different option, which was to go out to your existing supporters and people who'd been with the Teak slash Sorbet since, you know, the beginning or the end of 2012 and see if they wanted to own a slice of it. And that really appealed to me because I liked the idea of being bringing people along the journey, um, introducing them to investment in a way that equity crowdfunding is funny because it's obviously very risky for the investor because there's they can't they don't really have the ability to do a lot of due diligence yeah uh, but also it gives them chance to get on the ground floor with opportunities that the typical person doesn't ordinarily have so it's pluses and minuses and if you approach it with the mindset that you might you have the ability to lose everything you put in then you're in a good position but i just like that it offered people the opportunity to invest when ordinarily they don't get it and also it made um made the equity or the investment raising process a lot less scary for me so when you're selling it to those early investors and they like you say it's a bit riskier for them because you've got no track record necessarily yeah we pitch into them you know gifting your your profits to good causes like this is we're gonna uh, play the living wage we'll get you know we're gonna take a different approach to business were you were you saying to them that to them at that point were they investing in a different philosophy around capitalism almost absolutely yeah takes always well we're a little bit more aggressive i guess in how we say it you know we've got a a much more polished uh messaging around it but we have always been that business for good 
that's why we were registered as a B Corp so early. That's why we had the charitable program. It's never been a surprise to anybody who's been involved with the tea that we're here to do business a little bit differently. We just focus more on the plastic historically because that was something people could understand. We were trying to rid the world of plastic bottles. Yeah. Uh, but now we've expanded upon how much bigger that is than just plastic. And had you received money from friends and family as well? So suddenly got all these people looking at you or no, no, didn't do friends and family. Was that never an option for you? Um, I'm funny. I'm, look, I was raised by English parents. So talking about money is about as much fun as having your, th- your nails pulled out and having, imagining having that conversation with them would not be something I was comfortable with. And, you know, I just really never really thought about it, to be perfectly honest. I've always worked. Well, not always, but uh, my mum worked for a teak for five or six years, and that worked really well, which is, you know, was I'd never work with friends or family. That's the rule. Uh, but to me, it was, yeah, I don't know, a step too far was the money conversation. Don't know why. You're growing this business, is getting some success, but was it hard going to begin with? Like, when did things start really taking, because you've been, one thing you're really embracing of and is getting out there and talking about your brand, sharing your story, Really using unpaid media, I guess, to 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 sort of um, share your mission. And is that yeah. is that what you kind of grew the company on? That sort of getting out there and talking about it. One hundred percent. Yeah, PR and talking about something. That's why I believe that mission. Well, it's not why, but it's one of the reasons that mission led businesses are will grow faster and are more profitable than those that aren't. It's because there's a lot more to talk about. You know, PR and press and reporters are more likely to pay attention and therefore write about you, which is far, far more effective than paid media will ever be. So there's just more to talk about. Atik has so many different facets. I don't think we've covered all of them by media as it is now. Were the local media good to you at that point? Like, where did your, because you've had Amazing. Sig- were they, yeah. Yeah. Mm. significant growth. Yeah, they really were. Uh, they've been absolutely wonderful. Uh, they have put so much support behind Atik. Obviously, it's a two-way street. We have to give them something that's actually interesting to write about, but they really have. Um, the New Zealand media and, and further afield has been incredibly supportive of everything. Very lucky. And so for you, becoming an exporter, how did that come about? Because that's, that, you know, for New Zealand-based companies, that is the holy grail, I guess, and, but it's also a really hard thing to pull off. What did that look like for you and, and how did you make that happen? Hired a really good team. <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, I was always told for years and years and years, you don't look offshore until you're profitable in your home territory. And whilst I understand some of the logic, well, yeah, I understand the logic around it. I actually think it's a flawed strategy now. Anyway, now I know more. And my COO, who I hired, uh, end of 2016, very much disagreed with that strategy. And uh, I think it was through networks of his and then uh, lots of, of travel and figuring out how the American market works. That's when we started exporting to the USA through a distributor first. And we never, never ever once thought, you know what, I'm going to start exporting. All of this, a lot of people, I never planned any of this to a I plan a lot more now than I ever used to. A lot of this happened organically. You know, it wasn't, oh, we're going to export to the USA. It was, oh, we've got this opportunity in the US market. How exciting. Let's go and have a look at it. So I know a lot of people have this opinion about export being this huge barrier, this huge goal. But so many New Zealand companies export. It's surprising. I did a podcast um, series with Simon Pound a couple of months ago, and it was talking to six companies in Aotearoa who export and it was really interesting because it wasn't companies you thought did there's a lot of um a lot of interesting thoughts around export and translating your mission your brand to overseas the uk america were they almost more ready for 
was it less of a um, unique surprise than it had been in New Zealand? Like, what was the sort of reception you got from those overseas markets when you start you know, talking about your mission around plastic? No, New Zealand, New Zealand is much more embracing or much more engaged with a mission-lead business than some of those markets, particularly in the environmental movement. Uh, New Zealand is a forward-thinking country by and large, and that comes across in how easy it was to explain to people what it is we were doing and why we were doing it. So it depends on the market. Um, so we've got a big market in Japan, for example, and that what each country resonates with is how we will market to them, if you like, what message we'll use. But we'll try and, and bring in the other threads of the Atik story so that that begin to educate on that piece as well, if that makes sense. Mm. But no, I think New Zealand was without question the, um, the easiest to explain the mission to because it makes sense to New Zealand people. Growing, scaling a company, really challenging, really difficult. Like cash flow seems to be one of the biggest issues. You've made a real a, a mission-based decision to, to share more of your profits, you know, with, with your stakeholders, with your charitable mission, all of the, all of those things, which, you know, can, could look, someone might say slow down growth or make it trickier for you as a leader, um, give you more anxious nights. <laughs> you might feel good about what you're doing to the world, but, you know, like a potential for playing both sides, superpowering your business, but at the same time holding it back. Were there any, those sort of darkest days or those points where you feel like, you might be running out of money or what were you saying to yourself in those darkest days or were there, were there any dark days? Maybe there wasn't. Constantly. Anyone who runs a startup and says it wasn't any dark days uh, is either incredibly lucky or delusionary. Delusionary. Um, I don't know. Um, I'm quite a resilient person. I wasn't years ago, but it's you, you build resilience through building a company. And I may have flippantly said, oh, it would be so much easier if we're just selling plastic bottles. In fact, I know I've said that before <laughs> because it would be an easier thing for, say, warehouses or distributors to understand. But it was never a real consideration that we would ever drop those values because it would also be a, it would be a, a big problem for the brand because Atik is these values. If we dropped any of them, it would be a problem for the brand. It would be a problem for the business. It would not be a positive. And I think most people understand that about Atik and about a lot of mission-led brands. You can't make short-term decisions that will have long-term ramifications, if that makes sense. Yeah. What do you like with stress? Do you, do you take work home with you? Are you a fretter? Um, I'm an anxious person, but I don't typically feel stressed very often. But I think my, <laughs> my osteopath would say that I feel it, but I don't feel it, feel it. Does that make sense? Mm. Are you very, you very good partner and or daughter? Like, no. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. I have fifty-two animals. I live on a lifestyle boat now, and wandering around and playing with horses and stuff. That's that's a huge stress relief. In terms of leadership styles, like you're hiring people, was that a smooth journey? Like, I imagine it always didn't get go right. You didn't always hire the the right people to bring on board for the mission? No, I'm an appalling judge of character. Um, I like almost everybody I meet and therefore I assume they will be as wonderful as I think they are as they actually are. And often I don't make good hiring decisions. So I typically don't make the final decision with hiring. Um, I'll offer my opinion, but I, if it's if it's a team member's new team member, they make the decision with guidance from myself, my COO and perhaps more of the ops team. But uh, I typically am not a good well, I'm getting better, but certainly way back when um, I made some hires that probably weren't the best fit in the long run. But mm. as I will always say that even those people, you know, they may not have been the best fit, but they still contributed to a teak in a way that if they hadn't, we wouldn't be here today. Yeah, because you stress a lot to a lot of people that actually you're just part of it, right? So I know you talk about 
your your dreams and your the origin story and you link it to your own personal beliefs and i think that's wonderful but you also really stress that actually this is you wouldn't be here without an amazing team and then you sort of you know caveat that by and it's cliche but <laughs> you creating a community in your firm like it's a collective vibe i hope so it's you know as as ceo or i guess as founder more so i get all of the the glory and the credit and the majority of the awards and and so on and so and those things are all wonderful and nice and it's appreciated but i think what needs to be stressed is I have not done this on my own. It would be impossible for any founder, any CEO. And you think about all the, the sort of the hero CEOs or entrepreneurs you can think of. They didn't do any of that on their own. By and large, they probably didn't invent the products. They probably don't work in the R&D team and so on and so forth. But we still get all the credit and I, I'm uncomfortable with that. But it's also sort of a hard thing to fix because I also, I want to go out there and spread the word and, and tell the story more about a teak and, and that involves me doing it which I'm happy to do. But I also just want to ensure that people know that I have a cracker team behind me and that's how we got to where we are. Yeah. And looking back at the milestones, like when it, when did you sort of allow you that self, that feeling that this could be a success and then, oh yeah, this is successful. Like when did that? Never. And you know, never. It's still not there. Never. I, no. Um, no. And I, I know that sounds really like fakely modest and weird but i still don't feel that way now no which makes me assume it never will because all i rather than looking at what we've achieved which i lecture people on doing all the time uh rather than looking that i look at the things that i want to do want to achieve and that um that's a lot a lot bigger and a lot more to do than what we've what we've done so i am proud of what the team have achieved and prouder of how they've developed as people both in terms of their skills but also attitude and resilience and so on uh but i I feel there's an awful lot more that we have to do so as to whether it's i mean yeah obviously objectively atik has been successful thus far but nothing is guaranteed and anything can change and anything can happen so i don't say it's been a success because that would indicate it's over there's still more to do i suppose and you know, the founder journey and, uh, you know, the, this talk of founder sy- syndrome, uh, and the founder could be, as the story goes, could be the, the best thing for, uh, you know, launching, scaling, starting, but become an issue in terms of like bidding it in and leading it and being a CEO. How have you found that journey from founder to, to leader and then just sort of rolling and getting it done each year? Like, has that been, do you, do you like dealing with detail? You talked about being bored, but how do you maintain that sort of CEO vibe? Uh, Again, a good team around me who balance out my weaknesses. Depends on how you want to structure your company as to whether a, I am what you call, you know, sounds really grandiose, but I am the visionary CEO. And then I think big picture and small detail doesn't matter. It does matter, but I'm not good at it. I like to think creatively and and try and approach things from a, a different, well, a different approach. That isn't, that would not work. Unless I had the people around me who were good at the ops stuff and got and, and good at figuring out how to do things. And I actually have developed from working with those people, have developed uh, much better operations and finance and everything else that goes with it. So I've learned a lot on the job, but the only reason I've been able to is because I've been surrounded by those people who are a lot better at it than I am. 
And as for how, you know, at some point in time, a tick will outgrow me and we will want someone who's probably had 20 years experience in perhaps the beauty industry in America or or whatever. And um, I will no longer be the best person to be CEO because that's a very particular role. But I'll always be some kind of founder advisory values piece. I just may not run it. And, and to be honest, I don't want to run it forever. Mm because I have a lot of other exciting things I want to do. You know, we have um, an impact investment fund that I love doing and we've only been doing it for a, a few months now. And that's the kind of thing I want to expand upon. And you have talked openly about, you, know, you just don't like negativity. You like, you like positivity. And, you know, when you're being that visionary or you're coming up with lots of ideas, um, I guess your, your team must have got used to sort of like working with you on that and meeting you in the middle on that stuff. So we know they've got 10 things to do and you come up with an idea to do 11 and 12 things. So yeah. <laughs> they now, they now, we now, um, now they know. You know, years ago, they didn't know they could say, Brianne, this is undoable because I didn't know that they felt that they couldn't tell me that. Now they know that I want them to be dead honest and I want them to say no or I want them to say yes or whatever it is they need to say. Now we have open and honest conversations and we have much better communication and then there's no problem. They'll be like, cool, that's a great idea, but it's unrealistic for right now or that's a great idea, let's go do it, but let's do it this way. You know, it's much more of a collaborative environment. And culturally, because you're, I know you're based overseas a number you know in america and the uk but you're sort of headquartered in aotearoa mm -hmm. like we we talk about cultural specifics around talk poppy syndrome keeping it real lots of things that i think kind of unique to new zealand all of a sudden like how does it being successful being in the media's eye talking about yourself being quite honest open out there any have you kind of come across any issues being in this country and being that person oh yeah but tall poppy syndrome certainly isn't unique to new zealand uh it, it a lot of people peg that it is but uh, probably with the exception of america to a degree it's present in pretty much everywhere you know people depending on on what field it is successful pre people engender envy and sometimes that comes across as a bit of negativity but it is what it is at the end of the day you kind of have to accept that people are people and particularly on social media now where everyone has the ability to say what they like without any repercussions then yeah you get some nasty comments but by and large i think people are incredibly supportive of fatigue and therefore of me um when we take we do a wrong turn or we make a mistake people are certainly keen to call us out on it but that's also how you grow and learn as a company so as yet and look i've seen i've seen it happen to other to other business people and particularly women where the media can be harsh and then people sort of pile on but it's a risk you live with i suppose have you been criticized like, in the last two weeks have you had, have you had people hate, hating on you in the last month like is it is this a regular thing for you or oh yeah i mean i'm quite active on tiktok i get lots of hate comments on tiktok for example i haven't had a death threat in the last month which is quite nice you've had them before i have does it does it do you think about it the play in your mind mm, yeah they do actually mm. not for a particularly long period of time but for a day or two i'm I'm sort of taken aback at especially as they're you know they're often they, they come from the the strangest of of things that i thought was an ever so innocuous and then someone's got really really mad about it mm. but yeah. Does it make you want to do you do you then pull back for a, a month and then no. just go, no. No, it fades. Um the, the beauty of, of having built a company for ten years is yes, something may affect you briefly, but it'll last a day or two. And it would have to be quite intense, I would have thought, for me to disappear entirely. Mm.
but hey, anything can happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In terms of the future for Etik, and it's a, it's a private company, and you've got people who have have equity. Is there a sort of dream to one day go public? That's something you'll never do. Like, is there? Oh, God, no, mm. no. That that goes back to the look. Etik would never go, or I would never be the CEO if Etik was to go public because the paperwork and the compliance it just wouldn't be me. Certainly, an interesting way to have impact, but I believe that a company that runs the way Etik does is not yet ready. The public system or the public investment system is not yet ready for a company like Etik. Maybe then again, there are a few mission-led businesses that are publicly owned, so maybe that's not the right comment. But it wouldn't be something that would appeal to me because I like the ability. If we want to go and add a new value, that might cost the company a little bit on this side, but has benefits on the other side, it's hard to get that across in a shareholder communication, you know? Yeah. So, I don't know. doesn't appeal yet. I think one thing I've noticed with you is you, like, you're really giving, so you're, you mentor mentor people, you mentor um, people coming into business and sharing your entrepreneurial journey and story. Do you have mentors yourself? Where does Brown West get her inspiration from? Where do you get your kind of, like, pep talk when you need it, like, what does that look like for you? Probably that same COO I was talking about, but also, so he's a phenomenal source of actual skill and experience, but also mental toughness, old business partners. So historical business, historical people I've worked with, parents are always a good one, but they're obviously always the, you're always right. You know, they're always on my side when sometimes you want someone who's a little bit more neutral. Um, and then I'm now lucky enough to meet some amazing people I spent the morning with um, our prime minister, for example, today, uh-huh. um, which was, I'll be honest, I was very nervous about meeting her, but she, she blew me away. She was wonderful. I spent, you know, spent a, some time with Helen Clark a couple of weeks ago in New York. We were at a conference and just had a conversation with her. And I think the biggest thing that I take away from those is these are, you know, very successful women, but they're also human. And um, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of grounding, I guess. You know, it makes you realize that um, they're just ordinary people. Yeah. Anything is possible. Yeah. Do you think the world celebrates the authentic self, like, way more? Like, you can be, you could be your authentic self in business. So you could be the prime minister or you could be a leader of a, you know, a CEO of, of a successful business. And you could also have opinions about stuff or be involved in this and that. I know it just seems to be like, in the 80s and the 90s, this really narrow idea of what a business leader looked like um, or felt like, typically male, you know, like sort of focused on shareholder value. and But yeah, like, does that part of it excite for you, like being an inspiration to young women coming through, particularly, but just New Zealanders, people around you, like who see it's, it is possible. You can, you can grow and build a $100 million company from the South Island of New Zealand, which is a long way away from New York and a long way away from London. Does that bit, do you get off in that bit? Yeah, that's a probably a good point is I don't fit into a lot of CEO boxes. And because of that, I've read a few people who say, oh, you can't build a company in Christchurch. How many people have told me you need to move to at the minimum Auckland? But yeah, I think there is a lot more understanding that business people don't look a certain way, don't sound or feel or think a certain way, and they can still be successful. And there is also almost a requirement now that public figures are more human. We don't believe the facades that people put up. Obviously, there is a limit. I mean, I don't present everything. I don't offer everything about myself to the public. People are, you know, complicated. But I am who I am. And it's actually, I had someone, I spent some time with a photographer on Friday. And um, 
Bertolt me at the end that said, you are like you are on social media. And so I consider that an enormous compliment because the last thing that I think anybody should be doing is presenting a false viewpoint of themselves because you need, you know, if you see it, you can be it. And at the end of the day, the more uh, young women, young girls see CEOs and business people looking more like them and not having it all, quote, together or being anxious or nervous about something, the, the better off will be. Mm. You shouldn't let those things hold you back. Yeah. As we looked was wrapping up, like the f- you've talked a bit about the future and, and what your journey might look like. In terms of Etique, what does it need, still need to do? What does it need to look like in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years? Like, What would be exciting to you? There's not a lot different that we haven't done yet that excites me. It's just more of it. You know, so it's convincing more people to give up the bottle. It's more retailers. It's more people joining our mission to to create a regenerative circular economy. It's just more of the same, I suppose, which might sound a wee bit boring, but it's certainly not. To be a billion-dollar brand that's trusted globally is what I would like a tech to be. Uh-huh. Do you think about legacy yeah. a lot? No, not at all. Actually, I think that's the first time I've even thought about it at all. So I don't even really know how to answer your question. No. <laughs> Does that feel arrogant? Like the whole, like, I want the, my name to go down in history books. And like, does that thing, something you kind of rile against? Uh, I mean, and not necessarily arrogant, but it's sort of irrelevant. It doesn't matter. One of my favorite catchphrases, phrases, which some people seem to think is a bit dark, and I guess by definition it is. But, you know, at the end of the day, everyone around us right now will be dead in 100 years. So what does it matter? And I mean that as a positive, you know, that means you should, it doesn't matter what people think, you should go and do and follow your dreams and, and try and find your purpose or try and change the world or whatever you want to do. As long as we're doing those things in a positive way, just to be clear, you know, that that's how I mean that statement. And and therefore, a legacy, I, I just don't care. I don't have children and I, I don't intend to have children. Um, so the legacy thing doesn't, yeah, if that makes sense. Do, do you get, does that become a pain? Do people give you stick about that no no people never give i i understand why some people do get irritated but people don't tend to ask me and i think it's because i have been i haven't ever wanted to have children so i've never really talked about it. i've always known i want to be child free yeah it's not and so i mean share my home with 52 animals but yeah do you get grumpy about anything? Like, is this anything that you get grumpy? You, you talked about being grumpy about negativity but the things that irritate you oh greenwashing annoys me a lot um, manipulative marketing <laughs> companies, <laughs> companies that um, lie and mislead customers for their, so that they think they're more um, environmentally friendly than they are. Those are the sorts of things that annoy me. Mm. Lots of things annoy me. I just try and be friendly about things. I, I kind of, I'm thinking you might have called one of these these companies up, or maybe one of these leads up, and and, and pointed out that their their words didn't match their deeds. Have you done that? Have you have you been? A bit I of haven't. A, you haven't. No, I haven't. I'm also um, aware that I don't know the full story and I don't understand their decision-making and I don't want to, I don't want people to, I don't want to be um, overly antagonistic or attack a company when I don't know the full context and the full story. Mm. So I don't think I've ever attacked or rang up or complained to a company on that sort of thing that I can recall. Mm. But I do believe in education, so I like asking questions so I can get more understanding of why they're saying it, uh, and then I make a decision. But I tend to keep those sorts of things quite quiet. When Nespresso became a B Corp, <laughs> and you're, you you know, you guys made the decision to become a B Corp, and you know that's rigorous. You have to lay a lot of things on the line. It changes what, who you are as a company, how you operate. Well, how did you react? Like when when the headline hit, did you go? We were a bit aghast and say, 
wait a second here. <laughs> this is not the movement I joined. <laughs> it's a wee bit complicated. So I look at B Corp a wee bit too pure. To me, their slogan is a business is a force for good, right? To me, that means businesses that are actively doing good in as many facets as possible. I don't think Nespresso should be a B Corp when you look at it from that lens. What they should be applauded for and rewarded for is the steps they are taking to be a better business, but I don't think that makes them a B Corp yet. And I think the backlash that B Corp got from Nespresso and a few other companies has been good because they are now going out and doing a multi-stakeholder survey and revamping and and I guess making the B Corp standards harder. And that needed to happen because as the B Corp world has evolved and grown so rapidly, obviously they haven't been able to keep up with everything that's changing. So one of the things that they're looking at doing, for example, is making sure that you have to hit minimums in every category they have. So you can't just do beautifully and say governance or really, really well and, and community but be destroying the environment on the other hand you have to have a minimum in each category Mm. and that's that's a really important change they're putting in i then believe that with those changing of standards it will go back to more of what i thought just the pure these businesses are doing good you know they can always do better no one is perfect uh but they have reached a standard where we now consider them a force for good on in the world and these businesses, perhaps you have a working towards a B Corp list. I don't know what it is because you should reward people that and businesses that are trying to make a change because it's very hard. Yeah. And Espresso should be rewarded for that. And I appreciate they have done, Nestle has done some very, very unethical things historically. <sighs> but you can't punish a company continually because then where is their motivation to change and grow and be better? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's got to be a good thing. Yeah. Well, Brianne West. Massive thank you for joining me on purposely. Really enjoyed our conversation and um, all the best for the future for Atik and the Atik Foundation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. I hope you like what you're hearing because I sure do.